let's just you can follow along. I'll begin in verse 46 of Matthew 26, um, and we can uh, read the uh, text. You can uh, follow along as I read it for us. Beginning in verse 46 of Matthew 26, Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on him and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At, the hour, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then, that, then all the disciples left him and fled. Father, we pray this morning as we look into this text of Scripture that you would open our hearts to its truths, and Lord, that you would help us to discern and apply it to our own lives as uh, your children. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, out of Bethlehem came one of the most honorable citizens on all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a small little town about... 23 miles south of Jerusalem, named Kiriath. And that little town gave the world the most despicable character, that being Judas Iscariot. Um, Jesus confronted Judas about the betrayal to come Thursday night, you remember, while he was celebrating the Passover with all his disciples. And after sending Judas away, uh, they had the meal together, And uh, he sent Judas away to carry out his plan. And then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He taught the remaining 11 disciples there in that small little upper room, that house that someone loaned it to him. And uh, he taught them rather extensively. And and if you're interested in what he taught them, it's found in in John uh, up to... 13 through 17, basically. 17 is his prayer for that group of uh, disciples as he was about ready to be crucified within hours from that time. And uh, he departed after that teaching time and with the 11, and they went to this place in the Garden of Gethsemane, who somebody also loaned to Jesus on occasion. They frequented there. John tells us they were there. They were very familiar with that place. So it was obviously a place where Judas knew that Jesus would be at some point, and he didn't want him arrested in the temple or anywhere else, as we found out, because he didn't want a crowd of people around, because there were still a lot of people following Christ, and it would have, just with the Passover and everything going on, it just would have been a big hassle for all the authorities, and so Judas was now for a week looking for a period of time and a place where he could betray um, the Son of God, and the Lord went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's located there on the Mount of Olives, and he entered into prayer, and uh, he went to prayer three times, and, and during that time we spoke of how Satan obviously was entreating him to you know, just walk away from this situation. Satan was trying to, up at this point, do everything he could to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, from dying for the sins of the world. And uh, just like his modus operandi is, the same thing he did with Jesus before, he went three times and, and was the same thing here. And so Jesus was in this intense prayer, so intense that uh, the Bible says that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. And there's a medical condition that can actually happen if you're so stressed out 
your capillaries break and they mingle with the, the sweat that comes out of your pores. And each time he went away, he left the eight disciples there at the gate and took um, the three closest to him, the three leaders of the group, you might say, with him. And then he went a little further and he told those three to sit here and watch and pray. And every time he returned to them, what were they doing? Sleeping. And you say, well, what was wrong with them? Well, they had a long day. They had a long week. There was a lot going on. And so, you know, physically, they were probably exhausted. They just ate a big meal, uh, Passover meal together, the last supper they had together. And, and so, you know, after you eat, I don't know about you, after you eat a big meal, what happens? Well, you, you tend to just get kind of groggy. It's, it's hard to stay awake. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to understand that, you know, we, we don't want to think too lowly of the disciples here because they didn't really understand the uh, seriousness, you might say, of this situation for Christ. They didn't really get the idea that he was going to go and die on a cross in a couple hours, even though he told them time and time and time and time again. They didn't understand that. They were just caught up in the current ministry and, and the kingdom coming, and they thought it was all going to happen and everything was going to work out just fine. And so they didn't really understand the stress that he was under at all. And uh, when you read this passage of Scripture, I don't know if you're like me, but you get a little irritated at somebody like Judas. And it's almost like your flesh comes out and, and you want, you know, you want to do something to this individual, you know. And, and sometimes when you run into people who are not honoring Christ and yet they're naming the name of Christ, um, you have that same feeling most likely. It kind of frustrates you. They don't know the damage that they're, they're doing and, uh, for the cause of Christ, and, and it's, it's unfortunate. And sometimes those people that just are clueless and all that um, can be a little irritating. And so I'm sure that, you know, here in this situation, if the disciples would have understood what was going to happen, I think Peter probably would have just stabbed Judas as soon as he walked up versus, <laughs> rather than the, the high priest's servant. Okay, because I'm sure after they put two and two together and figured out what was happening here, they were a little dismayed at Judas. And especially the way that Judas betrays Christ with a kiss. I mean, you have to understand, in that culture, in that time especially, a kiss meant something. I mean, even today, when you embrace over there, people will give you a kiss on the cheek. It's just a sign of endearment. It's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of loyalty, even. And so for Judas to pick something like that to betray the Lord Jesus Christ just shows the wickedness of his heart, shows the depravity of who Judas was down deep in his soul. And as much as his act irritates me, I still find comfort in the fact that Christ responded in a very honoring way. He didn't respond how I would respond, that's for sure. You know, he remained perfectly calm, perfectly at peace, because he knew that this was all God's plan unfolding. The redemptive plan of all history is unfolding, and God will use him to redeem mankind. And so it's, it's on the one hand, kind of a frustrating passage, a very emotional passage, and on the other hand, it's, it's very interesting to see how Christ responds to this whole situation. Uh, our, our text brings us face to face with what you would call the worst of all traitor of all time, Judas Iscariot. And here you have Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, who was, the Bible says, intimately acquainted with grief, not just you know, around the peripheral edges, but it was deep in his soul. And he braced himself here for another encounter uh, before, another painful encounter, another painful experience before he went to the cross. Um, this section here is, is really kind of like a narrative. So we're going to kind of look at the different aspects of the narrative. And the first one there, we see the assault of the multitude. We see the assault of the multitude. You notice in verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, all of them, all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say that while he was still speaking, this mob arrived. And so you wonder, well, what was he saying? What was he actually saying during this time? 
Well, if you go back and you remember, he was coming to the disciples the last time in verse 35. He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now picture Jesus in the quietness of this garden. This, this mob comes out after him at night. They have torches, they have swords, they have soldiers. The high priests are there. They have all the different people involved, and we're going to be looking at that. But Christ, in the quietness of the garden, is praying. He's telling the disciples to keep watch. Every time he goes back, they're sleeping. And he's probably waking them up with his speech. He probably goes back to them and he says, Hey, sleep later on. This is not the place or the time for you to sleep. The hour's at hand. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he probably points over the horizon and says, See that? Those lights, those torches? That's Judas coming. And before they knew it, there they were. The crowd was right there in front of them, the multitude. And it's important that leading up to this, all this, this period of time, this is the Passion Week of Christ. It's late Thursday night, early Friday morning. In a couple hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross. He's going to be dying. He's going to be giving up his life. And a lot has gone on in the life of the disciples. The whole week was just, you know, six days of just one thing after the other. The cleansing of the temple. You know, he's constantly teaching the disciples. And so all these things happened very quickly. And it all came down to this one moment. And this is what Christ was warning the disciples about. And yet they totally missed it. They just didn't see it coming. It's around a little after midnight on Thursday, and Jesus gets to this place, and he realizes that his time is at hand. The hour is at hand. See, the hour was never at hand before. They could have arrested him in town before they saw him. They confronted him before. They never arrested him then. Why? Because the hour was not at hand. You see, the sovereign hand of God involved through this whole, whole approach. And what, what God is showing us very clearly is that he's in charge here, okay? He is in charge. Not, um, not Judas Iscariot, not the crowd. Jesus is the one who is in charge. And so they approach, and while they're approaching, he's waking up the disciples, and they're probably still groggy. They're probably thinking, what's going on? What's going on? And they probably open their eyes and, whoa, there's all these people there, and Judas is right out in front. Let's look at the actors of this mob, okay? We see this, this mob, and we want to know who, who is in this mob. Well, Judas is the first one. It says, Judas, one of the twelve. If you look throughout Scripture, that's always the title for Judas, I think I would have referred to him as Judas the traitor, or Judas this, or Judas that. But Scripture always refers to Judas as Judas, one of the twelve. It's a very common designation. You can see it in Mark chapter 14. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Mark 14, uh, 10, 20, 43. Over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, you see it. He, he always refers to Judas as one of the twelve. And you say, well, why is that? It's almost, they can't, it's, it's almost a title of, of, I can't believe this guy is one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve? This guy's really part of Jesus' entourage of disciples? It's kind of a statement of shock. That somebody so close to Jesus... For so long, would betray him in this fashion. It's just surprising. It's alarming. Now, Judas probably had a long day and a long week as well. Think about it. He's scheming. He's planning. He's trying to figure out when can I get them to line up with Christ, or I can get my you know go arrest Christ. What would be the best time, the best place, so I can go get my silver and I'm out of here. Judas arrived with the multitude early Friday morning. And he brings his whole little scheme and his plot. 
to this climax. Remember, Thursday night, he was with the disciples. He was with Jesus as they were having the Last Supper. And before he actually instituted that supper, before the actual important part of the meal took place, um, Jesus basically said to, said to Judas, you know, he, he kind of exposed him. Nobody got it. But Judas knew that Jesus knew. And Jesus definitely knew. And so Judas, at that point, went out to the leaders that night, and they told them, hey, I got the moment, I got the time and the place. I'm pretty sure here's what's going to happen tonight. And so Judas was motivated by what you say greed, call greed. I mean, he was also, the Bible says, possessed by Satan himself, which is pretty serious. So he was no longer really even in control of his own behavior. That doesn't excuse his behavior. But people who are possessed by a demon or by Satan do crazy things. And he was compelled to rally these Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers and everybody together and figure out a scheme and a plan to sell this plot to them and say, hey, we need to go get him and we need to go get him now. And Jesus wanted money because he wanted, probably he wanted compensation for all the time he spent with Christ. Remember, this is not a true disciple of Jesus. This is somebody who was along for the ride. And he's probably thinking at every moment, every little decision that Jesus makes in his ministry is probably just irritating the wits out of Judas. Because he's going, man, he's got all these followers. Think of all the money. And what's Jesus do? He turns to all the multitudes and says, hey, if you can't deny yourself, if you can't take up your cross daily, don't bother following me. He was constantly doing that. He was constantly telling the crowd, look, you better count the cost. I'm not staying at the Jerusalem Hilton tonight. I don't even have a place to lay my head. And Judas is probably rolling his eyes going, don't tell him that. You're going to chase him away. And for three years, this man put up with that. And so at this point, he's probably wanting his pound of flesh from Christ. And the only way he knew to get it was through money, through greed. And so he met with the Jewish leaders much earlier And they had to get permission, you understand, from the Roman authorities to arrest Christ. They just couldn't go out and arrest him. So those two entities had to come together. And most people believe that Judas probably went and met with Pilate himself to convince him, look, I'm part of this group. And you know what? This guy's definitely plotting an overthrow of your government. He's got a band of followers, and I know where he's going to be tonight. You can go and you can arrest him. And the religious leaders were there to make sure that the Roman authorities understood what was going to happen and why they felt this individual to be a threat. And so you see here that after this this whole plotting and this planning, Jesus clearly understands who the deceiver is. The disciples don't understand. They don't know. But they had to, Judas had to go and obtain um, permission from Pilate to allow this arrest, arrest to take place and convince him that Judas was this insurrectionist that was going to take over the government somehow, uh, that G- Jesus was this insurrectionist and, and Judas wanted the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities all to understand that. And they've... They, they just got done, the Roman authorities just got done squashing this one insurrection. Remember the guy Barabbas? He was known to kind of cause these insurrections. And they already had him in custody. And so just the mere mention of somebody else possibly doing the same thing, they probably just rallied up the troops and said, yeah, let's go get this guy, just in case. And so they had the protection of the Roman soldiers, this mob did, as they went to do their task. And Judas arranged it perfectly. Now, they didn't want to do it in the temple area, as I said before, because they'd probably have a riot on their hands. So it was up to Judas to find a place, and he did. Judas probably was spying out after he met with the leaders. He probably went back to that house they met in with the Last Supper, and they're probably, he's probably waiting to see, okay, where are they going to go next? And he probably saw them leave and go up to the Mount of Olives, and he goes, I know where they're going to go. They're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Favored place, John tells us, where they met often. It's a peaceful place. It was a place where they could get away from all the multitudes that were following them. And Christ could have some time in prayer. And so Judas knew exactly where this was going to go down. And so he let the authorities know. 
And at the right moment, everybody kind of was on the same page. Judas was on the same page. Satan was on the same page. Judas convinced the religious leaders they were on the same page. Even the Roman authorities were all on the same page. We've got to get this guy and we've got to get him now. But see, for all their secret planning, for all their conniving and scheming, you know what? They were falling right into what? The plan of God. God's sovereign plan. Acts 2.23. It says very clearly that all they were doing had been previously decided. It says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, all these things happened to Christ. This didn't take God by surprise. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And that makes the idea that he actually allowed it to happen all the more incredible. Well, we see Judas's just wicked hard here in this whole thing, planning and scheming. But then you look at the multitude and you see the, the different people who are made up. You have the Jewish leaders, it says. The chief priests, verse 47 says, and the elders of the people. The chief priests, you remember, back in that time, led the religious activity of Israel. The elders were the members of the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling body of Israel. And they were behind the arrest of Christ. They were the ones that wanted this to happen. They felt threatened by his religious teaching. They felt threatened by the way he impugned their own religion and talked about them being hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and all that. They've had it. They wanted to get rid of this guy. But it says in in John 18.3, Judas received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you had present were the Sadducees, who were the chief priests, the Pharisees, who were the kind of the, the, the regular priesthood, and then you had the members of the Sanhedrin. The high priest may have also been there, his servant was. I mean, it was a big entourage of people. Then you had on top of that, it says that you had the Roman soldiers. A band of men and officers, 18.3 says. That Greek word translated band refers to a cohort of soldiers. Specifically, it refers to one-tenth of a legion of a a Roman army. A legion contains 6,000 men, so one-tenth is 600 men. Stop and think, that's a big crowd of people. Just the soldiers themselves. And then you had all the support group. You know, you probably had the, the, the people that supported the, the soldiers as well. According to verse 12, the band of so, Roman soldiers were commanded by a captain, an officer, high rank. His troops were probably stationed at Fort Antonia, which was just off the north section of the temple ground. See, that's where they thought when Christ was going to go into the temple, remember when he rode in on Palm Monday there? They call it Palm Sunday, but it happened on a Monday. They thought, oh, he's going to go to the fort and he's going to take over. He's going to defeat the Romans. Well, that's not where he went. He went to the temple. So you had the Roman soldiers, but you also had this group of people known as the temple police. Luke twenty-two fifty-two adds this group. It says the captains of the temple. They were the people that kind of policed the temple area. So you had all these entourage of multitude of people coming to get one man. John 18.3 once again says that the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders had lanterns. They had torches. And you say, well, it was probably dark. Well, over in that section of the, 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 the world, you know, I mean, if the moon's out just a little bit, I mean, you can see everything. So the torches and the lanterns probably weren't for them to see the path that they were walking on. It was probably because they were fearful that once they contacted Christ and his disciples, they were going to flee and they were going to have to chase them into the, you know, the outer country or whatever. And so they came prepared for all that, ready to hunt them down. They also had weapons, it says. It says in verse 47 that they carried swords and clubs. That Greek word for sword is not some big you know, uh, huge kind of a sword. It's a, it's a short dagger, 
kind of a sword, something you'd, you'd carry, you know, just in your, your waistband. My uh, daughter called me the other day, and they went to the Museum of... Uh, the Aviation Museum, part of the Smithsonian Institute there, they took some friends there, and uh, they had the kids and the friends' kids and everything, and Mason had his backpack, kind of a camouflage backpack, and he had some water in there, and, you know, Crystal had packed it, and so he was just carrying it through, and you got to go through this uh, pretty high security, and you're not allowed to take any guns or anything like that in there, obviously. And so they were just going through security or whatever, and, and all of a sudden... Um, as they were viewing Mason's backpack, there was like this heightened <laughs> sense of urgency among the security people. And Crystal's friend said, I think you need to go talk to them. And she's like, well, it's just water in there. What, what could be? So she goes over, and they pull out this K-bar knife, which is like about, I don't know, like eight inches, ten inches long. And it was in a sheath and everything. And they're like, you know, this isn't even legal. You know, they didn't know it was, but you can't take it into the museum, obviously. And poor Mason, he was, you know, oh, I didn't do anything. You know? So they, they confiscated it, and Will had to come down and, and kind of, you know, get it back uh, uh, from him. But the whole thing was, I, I thought of that knife that, that they were probably carrying here. It wasn't some big sword they would use because it's more for kind of a, a close contact kind of a thing. And uh, when Paul talks about the armor of the Christian in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, he says the sword of the Spirit. He uses the same word. And so soldiers, they also carried what you would call a broad sword, all right, a, a huge sword. But that's not the one that they had here. They also had clubs, kind of like a billy club. Uh, they would use it in, in scuffles with people and things like that. And so you stop and you think of these people coming to arrest the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, and they come with all this, you know, armament and all this attitude, and they have all these people with them. I mean, when you stop and you think from that point on, how they treated this individual we know as Christ is just despicable. I mean, if they had a video camera back then and they were able to video what happened to Christ from this point on, and you were able to put it on YouTube, I mean, you'd have every lawyer, you know, coming to Christ's aid, go, man, this is abuse, this isn't right. Because that's exactly what it was. But you know what? It just shows you the characteristics of the wicked world. It just shows you what comes out naturally. I mean, if you don't think the world is wicked, ask yourself, how... Can it reject the most pure, loving, holy person that ever walked on the face of the earth? And not only reject him, but treat him as they treated Christ. Well, what are the characteristics of this wicked world we live in? Well, first of all, there's injustice. The world is unjust. I mean, did the Jewish leaders have the right to execute Christ? When you stop and think, what crime did he commit? I mean, Pilate himself in John 18, 38 said what? I find no fault in him at all. I mean, there was a man who was educated in in the law, and he said there's nothing here. He knew that Christ had done nothing wrong. The world's also mindless. You know, this is a multitude. It's kind of like a mob mentality, you might say. I mean, stop and think. What did the Roman soldiers have against Jesus Christ? Nothing. They didn't care. They didn't get involved in religious stuff. Many of the priests had nothing against Jesus Christ. They were simply following the orders of the high priests and the chief priests. And they were simply intimidated by Christ. I mean, when you stop and think, the role of the priest was what? To care for the people of Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He healed their diseases. He restored them to spiritual life. He taught them divine truth. They should have looked at Christ and said, thank you. But they didn't, because they were mindless. They were caught in this mood of the mob. You know, we've seen what mob mentality can do. You can see it when they have riots over in Oakland. You can see it when they had the riots down in L.A. I mean, you see young kids just, you know, throwing big rocks through stores and going in and getting big screen TVs and running over. It's like, what would you, why would you think you have the right to do that? It's mindless behavior. They're not thinking. 
part of the mob mentality. They sold themselves out to the emotion. Yeah, this guy's he's going to come against the guy. We're going to go get him. Let's go get him. And you can just see it kind of growing. And you know what? Today, there's a lot of people the same way in our world. There's a lot of people across our nation who reject Jesus Christ, and they do so, what I say, mindlessly. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, and you start to talk to them about their faith. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't believe the Bible. Oh, you don't? No, I don't. Don't believe it. Why not? I just don't. Have you ever read it? Well, no, but... <laughs> so you're telling me you don't believe something you never read. It's mindless. It's stupidity. And yet that's exactly what they stand by. So many times people just take for granted truths that they're taught or untruths that they're taught in schools and things like that. And, you know, you start to talk to them about certain things, whether it's creation versus evolution or whatever. And it's like, well, no, 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 that's just not true. Why not? Have you ever investigated it? You're just assuming the, the world is billions and billions and billions of years old. What if I were to tell you it's probably less than 10,000 years old? Would you believe me? No. Would you believe a scientist who's investigated it? I mean, that's a very conservative number, don't get me wrong. But just to reject it because it's not a billion years old is silly. Mindlessness of the world. People oftentimes reject the truth even though they've never even investigated it. And my response is always, you know what, check it out at least. At least check it out. At least read it for yourself and then do a critique on it or something. And the third thing there, the world is cowardly thinking. Here, here they're coming against this guy who's never really raised a hand against anybody his whole life. I mean, as crazy as Christ has gotten was in the temple when he overthrew some tables in a righteous anger that came out, turning his father's house into a den of thieves. But other than that, there's no evidence that Christ was some thug that walked around with a band of guys and beat up people. He always did good. He always helped people. And yet, this cowardly group of multitude of people shows up with swords and clubs and torches to arrest one little guy from Galilee. One commentator says this, A guilty conscience will make a coward out of anyone. Wicked people fear that they might receive what they know they deserve. They don't want to hear the truth. And these cowards arrive in these great numbers and they do so by night because they fear. They're fearful of exposure. They don't want anybody to know. They're trying to do it stealthily in the night. Cowards are bold only when the odds are overwhelmingly in their favor. That's when, all of a sudden, you see boldness come out. If you can isolate an unbeliever from his support group, there's instant vulnerability there. Because he's not surrounded by all the people that believe like he does. And then also the world is just irreverent, it's profane. They have no reverence at all for what is sacred here. I mean, here you have the Son of God, the one who's helped their people the most, literally banned disease from, from the whole area over there during his three years of ministry. Over and over again, showed his support for different things. And yet here we, we see them turning on him. No respect, nothing. I mean, you, sometimes you, when they arrest high-profile People, you know, they have this thing, the perk walk, you know, you, they, they, they show them walking out with the handcuffs and whatever. And if you're, if you're high enough up, you don't, you don't get that. You know, you don't see that on the camera for some people. You know, they could have at least done that with Christ. But no, they, they came with a mob, not looking for a dialogue, not looking for a discussion. They just wanted this guy out of the picture. And when it says there in verse 25, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The sinful hand seized the holy 
Jesus Christ in this garden. These are the people that he was going to die for. These are the people that he loved, that he cared for, that he was trying to impact their lives with the truth and the the ministry that he had amongst them. And yet, it said that he he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, the world is unjust, it's mindless, it's cowardly, it's irreverent. And all those elements of this evil are present at the arrest in the garden. And you know what? They're still present today in our world as we look around us. It's the same thing. We see the same characteristics in the lives of people who have not come to Christ to some degree or another. Well, that's the multitude. Look at the the kiss from the traitor here in verses 48 to 50. It says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign. See, this was, it kind of goes to the idea that he worked this out ahead of time. This was something that he was planning. His heart was intent on this. It's kind of like this shooting in Colorado, and you you understand this this kid had a, this guy had a uh, diary, and he wrote a letter and did all this stuff and planned it, booby-trapped his apartment. I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult to prove that this individual didn't intend to do what he did. It's going to be very difficult because a lot of his decisions, as bad, as horrible as they were, they were rational decisions before he carried this plan out. So it speaks to his state of mind. And now, you know, the defense, are, they're going to say, well, he was out of his mind. He was insane. Well, an insane person doesn't act this way. You know, an insane person would just go grab somebody's gun and run into a theater and start shooting. They wouldn't have planned every little detail out. And yet here we see Christ, or we see Judas, he says he planned everything out uh, to the point where he had given them a sign. Right down, okay, look, they're going to be in this garden, and he probably even knew, you know, no doubt there's going to be, you know, he's going to leave the group of eight back here, and there's going to be three up there closer to him, but I know he's going to be by himself. They've done this before. They've gone up to this garden before, and Judas was with them, so he knew their whole plan. So he gave them a sign. It says, whoever I kiss, that is he. Hold him fast. Take him down. Seize him. I mean, remember, this signal was necessary. This wasn't just theatrics. I mean, it it is dark. I mean, even if the moon's out, it's not like it's daytime. It's dark. And yeah, they had torches and whatnot. But probably the disciples didn't have any. And so you're coming up on a, a group of individuals with, with no light and, and that kind of a thing. You know, they're probably thinking, okay, Judas, how do we know which guy to grab? Because they're probably going to flee. We don't want them to get away. So why don't you go ahead of us a little bit? Just so that you can kind of set it up for us. And remember, it wasn't like Jesus had a halo glowing around his head. Long, flowing, blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, that's not what Jesus looked like. Jesus looked like any one of the other disciples. So, even if you were familiar with what he looked like, you'd probably maybe get him mixed up at night. So they needed a sign. So they wouldn't grab the wrong person. And the other one would get away. Maybe they thought one of the other disciples would try to be an imposter. Say, oh, I'm Christ, I'm Christ. If they just walked up and said, hey, who are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for Jesus. Oh, you know, let me handle this. <clears throat> and so Judas chose a kiss to signal the betrayal. I mean, he chose something that just reveals his perverse thinking. A kiss, as I said earlier, is a mark of honor. Um, a teacher would give his beloved teacher, or a student would give his beloved uh, teacher a kiss as a sign of respect and love. 
But you have to understand, it could only be given only when the teacher offered it first. You would never just walk up to a teacher and kiss him on the cheek. You just wouldn't do that. You would wait for the, the teacher to, to, to hug you and give you a kiss, and then you would kiss them. That's just respectful behavior. I mean, it was considered very wrong, very brash to offer a kiss to a teacher unless they invited it during the teacher's embrace. Because the kiss was a sign of affection. And usually, if you were inferior to somebody, you wouldn't kiss them on the cheek, you'd maybe kiss them on the back of the hand. That's just culturally what you would do. If they were at the level of a servant, maybe they would kiss the palm. Slaves, a lot of times, they would kiss somebody's feet. So kissing in that society meant a lot. They would kiss kiss the hem of somebody's garment as an expression of great reverence. But the kiss on the cheek was a sign of affection. It was a sign of love. It was a sign of intimacy. And that's what makes the kiss of Judas so wrong. Just absolutely wrong. He could have kissed the hem of his garment, but no, he didn't. He wanted to deceive even the disciples if he could which he's, up to this point, he's done a pretty good job at doing that. And so the word there, he he wanted to show affection. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, it's so important to understand the, the important part of an enemy's deceit is the exaggeration of his friendship. I mean, I can just imagine him telling the leaders and the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders, oh, Jesus and I, we're like this, man. You know, I know everything. You know, we're real close, real close. I'll just go up and give him a kiss. What a horrible way to betray somebody with a kiss. And it says there in verse 48, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. And then it says, Seize him. Seize him. And the idea here is when he actually did, it says that he he kissed him in verse 49. Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Okay, It wasn't just a little peck on the cheek from Judas. He continually kissed Jesus on the cheek. I mean, he was just playing this thing up big time. That word is used of a groom kissing his new bride. It's also used over in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, with a woman who who kissed the Savior's feet. So he, his kisses weren't just, uh, okay, I'm just going to go up and give him a little peck on the cheek. No. I mean, he embraced Jesus, oh, Rabbi, and just, just played it up big time. And in the midst of Judas kissing him, Jesus realizes what's going on. It says, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the idea is he kissed him over and over and over again. And look at what Jesus says in verse 50. The response of Christ is very clear. He says, friend, which is, is, is a horrible translation. <laughs> it's just a horrible translation. That word is not, it, maybe not friend, but rather fellow. Uh, maybe comrade. Definitely not friend. Jesus did not consider Judas his friend at this point in time. He's possessed by Satan. Come on. I mean, he's not considering Judas his friend. That ended when Judas left the Last Supper and he was doing what he was doing. The word here is is reserved for a friend. Uh, You know, the word for friend is used over in John 15, 15. It tells... When Jesus tells his disciples, I have called you friends. 
Well, Judas was already gone at that point. He was gone. And so it's, it's best comrade or fellow. And, and Judas is just hugging him and greetings and kissing him. And, and Jesus just says, look, pal, do what you came to do. What's the show about? What's this all about? If you look at the Greek text for that do what you're about to do, do what you came to do, you can translate it this way. On what you are here. (laughs) Doesn't really make much sense in our English, but here's kind of a better translation. Get on with what you're here to do. Don't play this game with me. Don't be continuously embracing me, calling me rabbi, kissing me. Just get on with what you're here to do. How could he say that? I mean, this was the point in time where from this point on, it's, it's you know, just hours to the cross. You think of this, the strength that Christ had here in this situation. Well, stop and think what he, would, what he had just finished doing. He just finished a very serious time of prayer with his father. He had resolved his own commitment to this task. So you know what? He was able to endure these betraying kisses. And basically tell Judas, you know what? Just get it over with. Just do what you came to do. And you know what? That was the farewell of Jesus to the son of perdition. That was it. And as Judas lives for eternity in hell... Even today, he must have ringing in his ears what Jesus says to him. You betray me with a kiss? That's what he says over in Luke twenty-two forty-eight. 48. You betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss, Judas? Are you kidding me? You're really going to do this? Well, then do it. But don't play it up. Because I know what's in your heart. Sometimes we come before the Lord and we, we feel like, you know, God doesn't know our need or God doesn't understand our circumstance or God doesn't understand what horrible thing we're going through. And so, you know, we go to God in prayer and we spend, you know, 20 minutes explaining to God what's going on as if he doesn't know. <laughs> right? Silly. God knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what's going on in my life. He knows the hurts, the pains, whatever. We don't need to explain those things to God. We need to go and say, hey, you know what? Help. (laughs) I need help in this situation. Don't play it up. For the crowd, I sometimes, you know, in prayer meetings, you know, you you hear people praying and it's like, wow, okay, what are they doing? Because, I mean, we're, we're in prayer, we're talking to God, we're not talking to each other, but it's almost like we're talking to each other and not God. So we start rattling off prayer requests, and we start saying, we explain the prayer requests, and this is all under the, the, the cover of prayer. Well, let's go to prayer. Okay. Well, Lord, you know what a horrible day I had today, and, and Lord, you know that the boss was really mad. when da, 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 and, we, we, and we explain the whole situation so that everybody's on the same page. It's just kind of silly. God doesn't need the explanation. He already gets it. He knows. If you want his help, just ask for it. And this is what kind of, in a way, was just in Jesus' face, all this kissing. and you know, hey, Judas, just do what you came to do. I, I see your heart in the wickedness of it. I'm not going to play the game any longer. Just do it. See, Judas was a false disciple, beloved. He was a false disciple. He was somebody who claimed to be a follower of Christ, and yet he wasn't in his heart of hearts. Look at the characteristics in Judas's life. First of all, greed. He loved money. He was the treasurer. <laughs> He lived for today. He wanted glory. He wanted success. He had greater regard for things in his life than he did for the one that gave him those things, God. He had a great desire to to sell the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't care. See, one indicator that 
you can, you can clearly see a false disciple in a false disciple's life is that they will follow Jesus to get what they want. That's why they'll follow Jesus. And as soon as they realize they're not getting what they want, then it's kind of like, oh, they just back off the whole thing. It's kind of like the person that comes and, you know, their marriage is on the rocks and maybe they're getting, his wife's divorcing them and they messed up and whatever. Oh, you know, and you share the faith, you know, share the gospel with them and, oh, they're gloriously saved and, they, 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 you know, all this stuff happens. And I don't know about you, but I just kind of sit there and hold my breath and say, okay, let's see how this will play out. Because when the wife is still bitter and the wife continues to go through with the divorce and the husband who is, quote, now born again and knows faith and is growing in the relationship with the Lord and all this stuff, they realize that, you know what, the marriage is dead and just because you became a Christian, it's still over and it's not going to come back together. Then all of a sudden, wow, I tried religion. Didn't work. We were, a couple weeks ago, we were down at... uh, um, Sequoia Station. I was waiting for my wife, and I was just sitting there in that little courtyard there by Starbucks, and there was a homeless guy there, and he was just kind of out of his mind, just talking stuff, and had his cane. He started beating the trash can, and, and uh, so they called the police, and, and uh, the police came out, and they were trying to talk to him, and he's just cussing and yelling, and, and um, he kept on pointing to this bag, and on the top of his bag, this little baggie he was carrying around, was a Bible, a big, thick, black Bible. And he's just cussing up a storm. And, you know, I tried God. I tried, did it. I read that book. And, you know, God doesn't do anything for me. You know, blankety, blankety, blank. And I thought, wow, how sad. You know, here's somebody who's, who's coming to Christ merely for what they can get. You know what? You fix my life, Jesus, and I'll follow you. <laughs> That's not the reason to come to Christ. Because, you know what? If you think your life is hard now, you commit your life to Christ, you just got another layer of that hardness added to your life. And Jesus didn't short sell this. He, didn't, he wasn't into the, you know, little game, you know, fog and mirrors kind of a thing. No, he said, you know what, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? You have to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, which means you have to die daily to yourself. That's not a popular message. That's a far cry from... The message of your best life now. Far cry. See, that message of Christ doesn't sell books. Just doesn't. But boy, if you can get people to believe that, you know, you come to Jesus, man, he'll put more money in your wallet, and oh, you'll be blessed beyond belief. And, you know, you go on and on and on with all that hype talk and everything. People get excited, and yeah, yeah, this is what I need. And they come to Christ not because of the weight of their sin. Not because they, they're, they're a wretched sinner and they need a Savior. No, they come because, well, they, they, they told me that Jesus would give me something. Felt needs. He's going to make me feel better. He's going to make me act better. He's going to help the drugs go away. He's going to help the alcohol go away. He's going to make my marriage better. He's going to fix my kids. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. I'm not saying he won't do those things, beloved. But that's no reason to come to Christ. That's no reason to commit your life to him. Judas was filled with greed. He was also filled with deceit. I mean, he, 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 was, he was so good at what he did, even the, his own disciples, the disciples of Christ, couldn't, didn't even know who Judas was. Big masquerade. It was a big rouge. See, they pretend to love the Lord. Judas was obviously successful because none of the other disciples suspected him at all. Ever. They never suspected him. Ever. When Jesus revealed that one of them would betray him, they each said, is it I? Is it I? Who is it? They weren't pointing their fingers. They were looking at their own hearts. False disciples are so deceitful that our Lord said believers can't determine for sure who's real and who isn't. The youth pastor, I used to talk to kids all the time, and usually it was the the females that would come and they would say, oh, you know, I, I got a boyfriend. You do, huh? Yeah. 
Is he a Christian? Well, you know, I th- he says he is. What do you mean by that? What do you mean he says he is? And you start talking to him about it, and pretty soon, you know, this, this guy doesn't know Jesus from man on the moon. But he says he is, so I guess that makes it okay. You know, they're deceitful. They want people to believe that they're something they're not. You have to be careful of that. And then hypocrisy. Judas kissed Christ to kill him. I mean, how hypocritical is that? He paid homage on the outside, and yet he hated Christ, I think, with, a, with just fervency on the inside. I mean, and, and Judas isn't somebody who's, you know, just out there all by himself. There's people like that all around us every day. They pretend to love Christ, but in reality, they're greedy, they're deceitful, they're hypocritical. They follow Christ for what they might get from Christ. Maybe it helps the conscience a little bit to show up on Sunday in church. Or maybe it gives them a little peace of mind to pray before a meal. Or maybe it helps out their reputation or whatever it might be. If the truth were known, they would sell Christ if they could see a greater gain for themselves. See, every day we have the potential, beloved, to find ourselves in our own Garden of Gethsemane. And we have to stop and we have to say, okay, if that happens, are we going to hang with the crowd? Are we going to stand with Christ? What are we going to do? Will we betray Christ like Judas? Are we going to run away like the other disciples ran away? Are we going to stand beside the Savior? See, this is a question we're all going to have to answer. Where are you going to stand? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, thank you for this picture into this confrontation with Judas. And Lord, next week as we look at the disciples and how they flee and, and just, uh, in a way, betray Christ. Father, I, I pray this morning that for anyone here, if, if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, if they're not bowing at his feet and worshiping him, I want them to know that he calls them to that today. Christ desires for us to know him in an intimate way as our Lord and Savior. He desires for us to come to him, not for mere material goods or what he's going to give us emotionally, but he wants us to come to him because there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else we can go to have our sins forgiven. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no plan B. There's no other door that we get to go through. Jesus said very clearly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to the Father must come through me. And through the work that I have done on your behalf. In our text this morning, Christ was just hours from giving up his life. Hours from being beaten physically. Hours from being separated from his father, which is just beyond all belief. Because he became sin for us. The Bible says that. And he bore the weight of our punishment. And he desires us to come to him. To make that need of forgiveness known to him. Because he is the forgiver. Make that need of grace known to him. Because he's the only one that can give you the grace that you need pay for your sin. Father, we pray that you would just move and work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would remember as we go out into this world that it's lost, it's dying, and it's quickly on its way to hell. Father, that as we run across people that 
from our lips they would hear the message of Christ. Christ is gracious. Christ loves. Christ forgives. And Father, they would also see it in our lives. That they would see a transformed person before them. A person that's not characteristic of the world. But a person that is called out of the world. And yet you still desire us to be the salt and the light. So that people could come to know the truth. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.